WCAB Sweetwater. Is 880 The Biz, where money talks. A service of Salem Media Group and part of the Wall Street Business Network. The following program is sponsored by Grant Stern. This is the Only in Miami show, sponsored by Morningside Mortgage Corporation of Bay Harbor Islands. Tonight's show is hosted by Grant Stern. Find out more about our sponsor at www.morningsidemortgage.com. That's www.morningsidemortgage.com. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlymiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlymiamiradio.com. And we are live tonight. I hope if you're stuck in traffic, you stay tuned, kick those shoes off, and relax. We've got a very good show planned for you tonight. If you live in southwest Broward or in northwest Miami-Dade County, we have a political candidate who is running for state house. It is an open seat, uh, Florida's 103rd state house, house district. Cindy Polo, a Democratic candidate for state house, will be joining us live tonight in just a few minutes. And in the back half of the program, we have a statewide political candidate calling in to tell us why she wants to be the next agriculture commissioner for the state of florida she is democrat she is from south florida nikki freed will be joining us live on the program just after the 7:40 break but this is the part of the program where i get a few minutes to speak directly with you the listening audience about issues of importance that impact us citywide and sometimes beyond and tonight i wanted to speak about a city issue that we're having in the city of miami the city of miami has recently changed leadership and we've got some very different personalities on the dais in the city of Miami City Hall than we're used to seeing. And two of the newcomers could not have more distinctly different personalities. One of them, Manolo Reyes, you've heard on this program. He is somebody that has stood up for accountability in the city. And then, on the other hand, we have Joe Carroyo. Joe Carroyo is a former mayor of the city of Miami. Best known as Crazy Joe Carroyo from the time that he was arrested for throwing a terracotta teapot at his uh, a tea holder at his wife's head, striking her in the head. And Joe Carroyo's political career has not improved since then. However, he managed to get elected in a very, very close runoff in Miami's District 3 in a neighborhood that he's never actually lived in, although he did rent an apartment for the requisite 366 days. Well, Commissioner Carroyo has been accused with good basis of extreme harassment of Miami's Ball and Chain, which is a bar and lounge that was restored to its former glory uh, about five years ago and is one of Miami's premier live music venues. And the venue has been harassed systemic, uh, systematically by a city commissioner who apparently is violating city laws on giving commands to city employees who are not the city manager. Now, this is the same Joe Carroyo who got headlines for making racist comments about the chair 
of a city commission meeting, which was at the time Ken Russell, city of Miami commissioner for district two. And Joe Carollo, commissioner Carollo, has also made headlines for giving out city paid lunches on behalf of a Miami-Dade County Commission candidate. All of these things are improper, but the combined effect is to throw the city of Miami's government, which during the best of times struggles to serve the community that pays its bill into chaos where the city is hiring and firing employees based on how attentive they are to Commissioner Carollo. And I am talking about the city's replacement of the code enforcement chair. And just this week, former Miami Parking Authority employee Rolando Tapanes uh, agreed to a plea deal for official misconduct, backdating emails to try and screw over a developer who was dealing with the parking authority. It's a theme that we return to again and again when discussing city government on this program, that there is unfortunately some very blatant corruption of office. But I bring up Commissioner Carroyo because his actions seem to be exceeding the bounds of authority for a city commissioner grossly. And by deploying city funds in favor of a political candidate, he has crossed the realm into what may be considered a criminal act. Every city resident needs to know that this is going on in city hall because this is the man who proposes Joe Carroyo. He is the man behind the MLS stadium plan. He is the person that approached the team and put the whole thing together. And he's the person that created the political coalition of Ken Russell Keon Hardman and himself quite, quite the odd fellows, the racist former cop who was fired for putting KKK materials into the locker of a black officer in 1976. Joe Carroyo worked for the Wallace campaign. George Wallace ran as a racist in 1976. Joe Carroyo said horrible racist things on the dais to African-American city employees he insulted African-American commissioners. Well, he learned from that, but that is what Joe Carroyo did in the 1980s. Now he's learned to keep that a little bit more under wraps, but not much. City of Miami residents need to know that we have a lunatic on the dais, somebody who is unrestrained, unrestrained by caring about anybody else besides himself and his petty ambitions. It is like having a tin pot dictator sitting on the throne. City of Miami commissioners have a lot of authority. There's only five of them for over 500,000 residents. And because of that, we give them a lot of trust as public officials. Well, it is time that City of Miami residents consider if it is the right time to withdraw that trust from Joe Carroyo at the ballot box. And we'll be right back. 
This is the Only in Miami show. Mama always said we were royalty. She even said it's staring in the face of poverty. Is that insanity or vanity? I think it's nothing but the power of the mind. Believe she put it in me. Because I live on my dreams. I get my fantasies wings. One day I'm gonna be king. I'm gonna make that woman so proud of her son. I know you heard about change. It's gonna come. One question. Will you be there? Will you be there? I'll be there with my hands held high in the air. Like a champion. Cause I demand the win. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlymiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlymiamiradio.com. And we are back live with Cindy Polo. She is the Democratic nominee for State House in District 103, covering Northwest Miami-Dade and South Broward. Cindy, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. My pleasure, Grant. How are you doing? I am well. How about yourself? Not bad, not bad. Running around like a like a mad woman, but all well. So since you've won the primary, I've seen quite a few endorsements on your page. Can you tell our audience uh, whose endorsements? There's national groups, there's individuals, there's politicians. Who has endorsed your campaign since you well, won the primary? Well, there's been a few. So I, I include you as part of that. So Only in Miami um, show was one of the first endorsements we received. We also received an endorsement from Senator Bernie Sanders. Um, Our Revolution, um, the Miami-Dade Environmental Caucus, Moms Demand Action uh, for Gun Control. Um, I've also received um, a few from some local organizations, uh, some in New York from Leap Forward. It's an organization that was started uh, to educate the public on gun violence. Um, So there's been quite a few. They're they're rolling in. I'm really humbled um, to see that. And, um, you know, there's there's still a few surprises that I'm I'm hoping will come in in the next few days and next few weeks. So are there any events coming up locally that you can tell our audience that you're going to be at if they'd like to meet you in person? We are still planning a lot of it, but I will tell you this. Every weekend, you know, we have, what, seven weekends left until um, Election Day. Every weekend is going to be full of opportunities for everyone to get involved. Um, We are a volunteer-driven campaign. We do not have the big bucks like a lot of the campaigns. And, um, you know, we put our sweat equity into winning a primary that we were sort of forced into at the last minute. 
Um, so they may be able to outspend us, but they won't outwork us. And so what we need is volunteers. We need volunteers to help us knock on doors. And if that's intimidating, we can give you a list of, of, of calls to, to make. And if you still don't really want to talk to anybody, we have postcards that can be mailed out. Um, we take all sorts of volunteers in any sort of capacity that they can have. And all events will be on my website, um, cindypolo.com. And also on our social media, um, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and my handles are all the same. It's Cindy Polo FL 103, and we will be updating those um, as soon as we have you know things in the books. But right now we are we're scrambling to to just really get the word out and be wherever we can be. So, how many volunteers do you have right now? Well, you know, it, it ranges because the last few weeks leading up to the primary, the weather was horrible, as you can remember. Oh, and sure. So we I had, there. Yeah. So there were some days that we had, you know, from five or six of our real loyal ones um, to weekends of we averaged anywhere from 30 to 40. And that is a pretty impressive number for this small operation. I have an amazing army of friends and volunteers that have joined in. Um, and more of them, you know, are joining in as we go along. I think, you know, for, for a first-time candidate, you have to sort of prove yourself to get people to believe in you. Um, but a lot of these organizations, like, for example, Our Revolution, um, the Northwest State Dems, they are a group that is just ready to get Democrats into office. And more importantly, in our district, um, across party lines, really the need and urge to get new voices and new faces and new ideas into office um, because we are, as you know, and you, you know, highlight a lot on your show, we are victims of the same little clique and the same little crew that has been running um, offices in Miami-Dade County for as long as I can remember. And I'm, I'm already 40. So it's time for, you know, for a new generation, it's time for new voices and we need real representation to reflect the citizens that are in our community. Well, I think that that's a big feature of having a grassroots campaign instead of the traditional raise money from the large companies and then try to bombard people's mailboxes and television screens with ads. It, it seems like I mean, a, I, this is what I've learned with campaigns is that there is no there is no one set way of doing it. But I will say that, you know, th I haven't been at this for very long. I decided to run, um, you know, right after the Parkland tragedy. And so I'm new to this game, but I'm not new to the community. And I'm not new to what politics and the apathy towards politics causes in our lives. And so I think that the grassroots movement, you're absolutely right. There has been um, a lot of pros to it, which is we are nimble, we are quick, and we can just adjust. Um, and one of the biggest advantages is that I don't need, you know, a consultant or a campaign manager to give me talking points on what matters to my community. I've lived here my entire life. And so I also know, you know, our opposition's tactics. And just as I had imagined within 24 hours of winning my primary, I have now been called a communist, a socialist, um, you know, that, that's just propaganda. It's the usual propaganda. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 do you think that playbook? Well, do you think that people in the district have finally woken up to the, the idea that this propaganda is simply uh, one party trying to mislead everybody? 
I don't think they just woke up. I think we've known it for quite some time. I think what we needed was a demographic shift. Um, and so as the numbers have changed, and it's not it's not something that's unique to my district. I think it's just it's interesting and, you know, a little comical to be on the receiving end, because as a kid, I just sort of realized that if you were part of one particular um, party and, you know, I, I was too young to really understand the difference between the parties the the go-to was about communism, you know, so if you want everyone to have health care and you want people to be able to afford housing and you want people to have access to education, all of a sudden you're communist. And I think that that was obviously the playbook and the strategy was that you had people that really did suffer the consequences of communism and are afraid of it. And so they they play into those fears. But I do think that the demographics have changed. I think people realize that that playbook is overplayed and it's tired. And it's time to really talk about the things that matter. You know, one of the robocalls that went out against me within that little window of being called a communist, I thought, you know, none of the the questions talked about our environment. None of the questions talked (laughs) about the mind blasting that occurs in Miami-Dade County. None of the questions were, you know, what does she want to do? with the overdevelopment that's affecting the residents in Northwest Miami-Dade and South Broward. Well, and so I, I hope I, that more people have, have woken up to it. You, you know, I think that that speaks to the uh, the prevailing view in the, the Republican Party, which is uh, socialism for me, ca- uh, capitalism for you, uh, because you right. have a lot of government involvement in real estate development. It's simply unavoidable. You know, like they need roads, they need services, and and they depend on our uh, on our government for that for these large developments. They depend on our government to to pass a lot of uh, costs on the taxpayers, whether it's roads, you know, whether it's new schools near developments, etc. Absolutely. Um, and, so and I, I think people I think don't realize just, that they're paying for all this. Yet you right. know they're being told that they shouldn't be able to get benefits that they could you know pay for too, like uh, Medicare well, for all. Here's where I'll disagree with you, Grant. It's not that people don't know it. This is what I am learning more and more in campaigns. The people that have the money that can get on TV during the World Cup and can get on when you're watching The Real Housewives and are on, you know, CNN's commercials, the people that have the money get to talk all they want. And so sometimes as the public, we assume that because we see it on TV and because we see ads and because we see billboards off the side of 826, that that must be the truth. And in fact, I think most of the public knows that the money, just because you're able to have access to mediums of communication, isn't the truth, you know. And in our community, when we have been knocking on doors and speaking to people, there are two, there are two prevailing comments that, um, that our community members have been sharing with us. One, they're super proud that somebody from their community that looks like them, that's a mother that has, you know, struggled in our area is standing up to them. That's one. And number two is, oh, my God, you came to my door, you know, because sometimes people are just in campaigns or just spending tens of thousands of money of, you know, mailers. And all of those things are helpful. Don't you know, I don't want anyone to think that I'm naive to think that money doesn't matter and it doesn't help. But I think the public does, in fact, know that those things that they buy into are the things that matter, but because they don't have the power to be, let's say, on radio stations and TV stations, then they feel that they're very alone in their beliefs. And what the results in our district specifically are showing is, you know, we're an area that even my own party has dismissed. They just, they just assumed 
that anything near Hialeah goes red and votes Republican. And that's not the case. And so I think it's important for down balloting candidates, um, you know, not the ones that you're going to see the coverage every single day, that our community knows that there's some of us that are going to fight for them on a much um, on a much personalized level. And that when we go to Tallahassee, we are going to be fighting for them because, in essence, we're fighting for ourselves. It's my home in this district. It's my son that's growing up in public schools. And and so I think that is what the public is hungry for, is that they're looking for representation that is, in fact, their representation and not the representation of big, uh, big money and big industries. So, Cindy, let's keep talking about this on the other side of the break and we'll be right back this is the only in miami show Show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlymiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlymiamiradio.com. And we are back with Cindy Polo. She is the Democratic nominee for Florida House District 103. Cindy, thank you so much for joining me on the program. No, thank you. And thank you so much for letting me call in, because as you can imagine, I'm chasing like a two-year-old, and sometimes it can be really difficult to be in too many places at once. So I really appreciate this opportunity. No, it is my pleasure to have you on the program. So I wanted to ask you an explosive question. Go. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. I wanted to ask you about the, the rock mining issue, because, you know, that is yeah. the the number one issue that you told me for many residents on the western boundary of your district uh, so uh, why is it the residents should choose you over your opponent, the Republican Frank Mingo, when it comes to blasting issues? Well, the clear answer is that they have been in office. He's, he's currently um, on the city council, on the town council of Miami Lakes. Um, his friends, you know, uh, one is his boss is the incoming speaker of the house, Jose Oliva. Um, so, so he's an employee of another yes, representative. Correct, of the cigar company, yes. And okay. see, and everyone on our side, like none of us raise eyebrows at that, right? Because we've known it our entire lives, we've lived with it. 
Um, but the current representative, Manny Diaz Jr., who feels he has done such an amazing job in our district that he deserves a promotion, is now running for Senate. And so they handpicked their candidates. And I think I've you know said this to you before. We have to give credit where credit is due. When one of them decides that they want another position, they've got three lined up to take over their spot. Um, and in our you know party and in our particular community, we're not necessarily you know groomed to be the next um, the next senator or the next representative. And so sometimes we just have to continue to fight. And so to answer your question, is they have been in office. I mean, the same party has been in office for 20 years in our state, both in the state house and um, state senate and our governorship. And so when we ask ourselves why nothing has changed, well, there's your answer. And then if you really want to get upset, then what you want to ask yourself is who does White Rock, which is the, the mining company, who do they donate to? And when you start seeing all of your Miami-Dade delegation as recipients of donations, just blatantly from White Rock, but then also from um, Cemex and from all of the companies that basically make money off of this blasting site, then there's your answer. They go up to Tallahassee and they represent those interests and not the interests of close to 10,000 residents within what we have um, calculated to be the radius of, of where the damage is being caused. And it's not just homes, it's businesses, it's hospitals, it's schools, it's our quality of life. And because the representation does not reflect the citizens within our community, we have no one that speaks about it. How many times have I been in interviews and people say, well, what do you mean there's blasting? And I think to myself, because we're not the ones in power, we're not the ones that get to speak up on the community. And so what happens? You had a group of residents that got pissed enough and we created coalitions and we created committees and we demanded representatives and elected officials to make this part of their platform. And I'm happy to announce that as of last week, all of the Republicans that are in office that have been in office for decades finally put out a press release about all of the wonderful things they're going to do to protect residents in Northwest Dade from the mind blasting. And so, Grant, it may sound um, like I'm being, you know, maybe a little too snarky, but the goal of someone like me running for office is to bring attention to items and subjects that have been ignored and to give a voice to the voiceless. And if at least I have forced them to put on record that they will introduce legislation to protect us, the residents, then we're already winning. And we're winning because we are speaking on the truth. And I am the only candidate in, in, a, in a wide array of offices that has made this part of my platform issue since day one, not after. You know, there's been pressure and obviously press coverage. But you know what? The bandwagon is big enough. And this is an issue that should not be, um, that should not be a partisan issue. We have enough of those. And so if at least the Republican little crew decides that now it matters because votes matter to them, then, you know, we'll take it. There's enough room on the bandwagon for them as well. So, Cindy, where can our audience take this discussion onto the Internet after the program, your Twitter account, your, your Web page? I am on Twitter and that's my that's my I feel like my uh, where am I? I am at my best. And that's Cindy Polo FL. So as in Florida, 103 Cindy Polo FL 103. And that same handle, you can find me on Instagram and you can find me on Facebook. And my website is cindypolo.com. Really easy, polo, P-O-L-O, 
And um, you can contact me there. My phone number's on there. My email address is on there. So if there's any issues that are affecting your community, especially if you are in District 103, which is Northwest State and South Broward, I'd love to hear from you. Cindy, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Thank you, Grant. Have a great one. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. on point and a walk is mean the crowd parts like the sea they can look but a touch they can only dream he loves a challenge so he licks his lips he's inspired by her arrogance his first words make her body tense she can't leave cause she feels his strength now she can't help but listen but she's down to her last defense and she says why you being so persistent he says i speak what i want into existence she never heard a man talk like this never seen somebody so confident driven to the point of death guess what he wants even if it means no Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlyinmiamiradio.com. And we're back with Craig Unger. He is the author of House of Trump, House of Putin, The Untold Story of Donald Trump and the Russian Mafia. Craig, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So you've, you've got a new book out, and it is absolutely, I think, destroying some people's perceptions of who Donald Trump really is by following the money, and the money trail leads back to the Russian mafia. So I wanted to ask you a few questions about how South Florida is involved in this money trail, because you've written that Trump-branded real estate has been a vehicle for laundering money for many, many years. So what would be the number one Miami connection in the, the untold story of Donald Trump and the, the Russian mafia. Well, there are lots of Miami connections. And one, I mean, we saw Michael Cohen this week uh, is, uh, is, is flipping. And he, while he was down there way back uh, 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 more than 20 years ago with casino boats off the coast of Florida, I, I, you know, I saw the, the, uh, the, the Russians first came to, to, the Russian mafia first came to Trump going back to the late 70s and 80s, and Trump began laundering money. And uh, essentially, Trump loves gangsters as uh, as his customers because they pay top dollar because he doesn't ask questions and uh, they, he allows them to buy anonymously. Uh, and you see in Sunny Isles, Florida, for example, uh, about a third of the residents are Russians. It's often been known as, as uh, Little Moscow. And uh, he's been doing this all over the world. There are roughly 40 Trump Towers all over the world. There are about th- at least 1,300 units have been sold under conditions that appear to be laundering money. That is, they are shell companies, anonymous shell companies, and all cash purchases. Those are the two criteria that that set off the alarm bells about money laundering. 
Now, now, back up for a second. How many units exactly is that? That's thirteen hundred condos. And think about it. Uh, you know, a million dollars. That's a lot. That's, I mean, that's a, a lot of condos. And a million dollars is a low ball figure for a Trump condo. So uh, most likely, that's well over a billion dollars. And that only includes his American properties. Uh, he owns many, many properties overseas. Well, you know, one of the things that I saw when Trump was inaugurated was a lot of questions about emoluments. And what they talked about was how it's difficult to determine what a luxury piece of real estate is really worth. And so it gave room for, let's say, error. But what you're saying is this error is more like intentional, like maybe some of these are inflated prices. Because it's money laundering. Well, it's po quite possible. I mean, there's a concept, uh, legal concept known as willful ignorance, and, and Trump seems to be, if you were to do the same thing 1,300 times, you may know what you're doing. I can't prove what's going <laughs> through his mind, but he should have sure. figured it out by now. Well, you know, you, you mentioned Michael Cohen, and, uh, and of course, his plea deal is, is massive news. And he actually just visited Miami uh, in April to meet with the Qatari delegation. Um, you know, so, I mean, this is something that's happening in South Florida. I'm just trying to let our listeners know. So I wanted to move on to Felix Sater. He's a very interesting character. And I don't know if you've seen it, but I've received a couple of emails from his attorney, and they're not exactly grammatically correct, but they said things like, we will taking legal action. And I did print all of those emails, and they even confirmed some of the stories I've been writing. But what can you tell us about Felix Sater's relationship to the Russian mafia? Well, it, it goes way back as well, and there, there are many unanswered questions. I mean, one of the interesting things, of course, is that Felix and Michael Cohn uh, have known each other uh, for roughly 30 years, and, and uh, Michael Cohn married a woman, a Ukrainian woman, who Sater grew up with. Uh, so they go way, way back. And Sater's father uh, was uh, worked in... in old friends from Long Island. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, F Felix Sater was from Biden Beach area, which is where the Russian, Russian mafia was. Uh, Michael Cohn grew up in a sort of fancier towns in Long Island. But w one okay. of the interesting things about him was uh, he and his uncle owned uh, the social club restaurant in Brighton Beast that was the home base for the Russian mafia. And uh, Michael Cohn owned part of that until, uh, until the election. And he, Which is pretty crazy when you think about it. That's like the Bada Bing, but for the Russian mob. Absolutely, absolutely, and and I mean, what what you see with I mean, we we've had uh, Michael Cohn and Paul Manafort are, are two stones that have fallen this week. Uh, in my book, I have at least fifty nine contacts, fifty nine people who are intermediaries between. Trump and the Russians, and, and an awful lot of them are part of the Russian mafia. Uh, as I say, uh, uh, Cohn and Manafort are just two of those, and when you put together the whole 59, I think you begin to see the whole picture. And this is sort of, uh, to me, sort of the roadmap that I believe Robert Mueller will be following. Well, one of the things that I find very interesting, and... It's something that we actually, I heard in a podcast that I produced from Tom Arnold, but I've heard it from other places, which is that the Russians were talking with Donald Trump about running for president in 2013 when the Miss Universe pageant was ongoing. He had considered it in 2011 and stopped. Everybody, you know, I thought it was because of maybe what was going on in Scotland with that crazy land development. But uh, what is the relationship between 
the, the Russians and Donald Trump running for president because it always seems to come up in tandem. It seems like this Russia and, and running for president always seem to be somehow related, whether it's Gorbachev back in 1987 meeting with Gorbachev and then taking out the big ad. Where, where do you think this fits into your picture? I, I think it goes way back and the Russians were looking at him really as early as the 70s, even when he married uh, Ivana Trump, uh, his first wife, who, who was originally Czech, and Czech uh, uh, security were spying on him. And if you look at the, the files uh, of them, which I quote in my book, it, it talks about him being pressured to run for president. That's, that's the word. He's being pressured to run for president. I was a New Yorker back then. I, that, that was shocking to me. Well, well, let me tell you something that's interesting, because I interviewed Roger Stone, another infamous South Florida resident, and I interviewed him on May 1st of last year. And he said something that one of my listeners and readers pointed out. He said that he began pushing Trump to run for president in 1988. Absolutely. Uh, and nobody else has reported that before. And he thought it was very significant. I thought it was significant because it confirmed the Czech story. But maybe there's something else there. Well, I, I, I mean, there, it, it did start then. The use of the word pressure is interesting because it suggests they have something on him. And I interviewed General Oleg Kalugin, who uh, was head of counterintelligence for the KGB, now lives, he's defected and now lives outside uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, right in Maryland, right? Yes, yes. And... Uh, he, he talked to me. He, he was actually Vladimir Putin's boss. Uh, he was head, oh, wow. head of counterintelligence. And he was referring to Trump's first trip to Russia in 1987. And Kalugin told me, uh, I would not be surprised if the Russians have, and Trump knows about them, files on him during his trip to Russia, this is 1987, and his involvement in meeting young ladies that were controlled by Russian intelligence. Uh, that's a pretty serious charge. And I mean, we heard similar charges from the Steele dossier. This is a different period, however. And this is not just uh, stuff that uh, we, we've heard similar charges from our own CIA, but this is from the KGB as well. Well, did Kalugin express any concern about his own safety? Because we've seen that Russia has retaliated very fiercely against those who have left the security services and who have talked about their time in, in the KGB or in the FSB. Although I know he is older guard, but still, is, is he concerned? He uh, he didn't seem to be. I mean, I think he seems to be uh, feel that in the United States he's safe. But certainly, uh, you know, I, I dedicated the book to people who have been killed investigating this. Lots of journalists uh, and intelligence operatives, such as Alexander Litvinenko, who was poisoned with polonium. Uh, uh, there's... Uh, Paul Klebnikov, who was Forbes magazine's, uh, the Russian edition of Forbes, was, was murdered uh, about 15 years ago. So this is very, very serious stuff, and Putin does retaliate. Well, we've, we've only got a couple minutes left, but I wanted to ask you one last question. You, you wrote that Tom DeLay and Jack Abramoff, that particular scandal, is still relevant today, and that's something that I've written in my work as well. Why do you believe that that scandal from 2006 is relevant in 2018. Well, I think more than 20 years ago, money began pouring into uh, from the Russians into the Republican Party, mostly Republicans. Occasionally, they would try Democrats as well. But 
you know, one of the big parts of the scandal to me is what's legal. Uh, it's not, not what's illegal. That is, with the K Street lobbying system, for example, the Russians studied this. I, I wrote a book called House of Bush, House of Saud, and I showed how the Saudis sort of uh, weaseled their way into power through the K Street lobbying system. Right afterwards, a member, uh, a guy from the Russian consulate called me and took me to lunch and wanted to talk about it. And it looks like the Russians have followed the same game plan in many ways. And we, we, they, we saw... We've seen money flow, Russian money go into super PAC, Republican super PACs. Uh, they wanted to actually bribe Tom DeLay, according to one of my sources, and give him a car straight out. And they were advised, no, 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 give it to, uh, go through K Street or give it through super PAC. And they sort of brightened and said, oh, you guys have uh, legalized bribery. How, uh, how wonderful. Yeah, and then uh, since then, all of the fi campaign finance laws have grown even more lax, except for the ones that Donald Trump seems to be interested in breaking. Exactly. I mean, you have money, for example, went through Leonard Blavatnik, who's a Ukrainian oligarch, but he's a naturalized American. So he put about $11 million into the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee, and that ends up going to Mitch McC McConnell. Well, don't you think it's interesting that Blavatnik had never given more than 100 dona uh, donations uh, on the federal level in any campaign until 2015-16, and in both 2015-16 and 2016-17, Blavatnik has actually given five thousand, in excess of 5,000 donations. Uh, by my count, about eight checks per day, every day, for several years. Yeah, the change in behavior and just how widespread all this is makes you think that it can't possibly be, uh, this has to be an operation. It's not random. It's not coincidental. When I go through these 59 contacts uh, uh, between Trump and Russia, you know, this is an operation. It is an intelligence operation. It started off as money laundering, I believe, um, uh, but it it, uh, it evolved into something much, much more, and the Russians realized they hit the jackpot, uh, and, uh, oops, they ended up putting an asset in the Oval Office, and that's pretty scary. Craig, where can our audience take this conversation onto the Internet after the program, and where can they find the book? Well, they, the book is in uh, bookstores everywhere, and they can follow me on Twitter. And by the way, I've had great help from a wonderful researcher named Olga Lautman, who uh, I believe has worked with you on occasion. She is absolutely fantastic, and I'm sure if she was working with you, your book is phenomenal. Well, she, you know, I got through her, I got access to all sorts of Russian documents, but in addition to that, she is uh, just a, a wonderful resource. Well, Craig, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Okay, thanks for having me. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show.
Ooh, welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern, and everything about the show at www.onlymiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlymiamiradio.com. And we are back live with Florida Democratic candidate for Agricultural Commissioner, Nikki Freed. Nikki, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Thanks for having me, Grant. Appreciate it. Looking forward to being on. Well, it's nice to have you on for your new race. We spoke a little bit earlier in the summer. I don't know if you were sure what you wanted to do then, but I think you're sure now. I think so, too. I think so is 820,000 people in the state of Florida. (laughs) That's right. Congratulations. So let's talk about the issues that you're hearing about on the campaign. You're out there. I'm sure you're traveling statewide. What are the top issues that constituents are coming to you about that they want in a new agriculture commissioner to replace the outgoing uh, Republican commissioner? I mean, mean, basically, I'm seeing this as as a, you know, fresh start. You know, the restart button needs to be pressed. Uh, I think people across the state are starting to understand the impact of this position. I think that's been part of the problem that I've been seeing across the state is that most Floridians don't even know that this is an elected position. And even if it's elected, that it's a statewide cabinet office. Um, so once I start explaining that, they're, they're realizing the amount of impact uh, that the commissioner can have on the state of Florida, such as the water quality issues. You know, everything that we're seeing with the blue-green algae, the red tide, they're seeing how important it is to have the right person with the right policy ideas to move forward. You know, obviously we saw, you know, how our past commissioner, um, you know, dropped the ball when it came to the concealed weapons permitting process. You know, having somebody in there with a, a new vision and new ideas of how to make sure that our citizens are protected and that we have somebody who um, understands that we are the first line of defense uh, to protect the citizens of Florida. And obviously we know that, you know, one of the big things that I've been talking about since the day that I, I decided to run is our, our medical marijuana is the fact that we have seen time and time again Tallahassee just not listening to the will of the people and taking every step along the way to put roadblocks. And so those are kind of still some of the issues that we're seeing on the campaign trail is just new leadership, new ideas, and having people that are going to actually listen to the citizens of Florida. Well, you know, you just mentioned three issues that have nothing to do with just farmers. You know, people think, oh, it's agriculture. I'm not worried about that. It's just for somebody who's got a farm. But it, it actually really impacts everybody's life in Florida pretty heavily. Absolutely. And that's kind of what I've been doing is part of this is, yes, to get people to, to you know, support my candidacy, but more importantly, to learn how important this position is. Because it's not just ag. You're absolutely right, Grant. It's all of our energy policies, all of our water policies, all of our consumer services. You know, the fact that this cabinet position oversees everything from the do not call list to fraud at the gas station pumps, uh, all of our food safety qualities and the food stores, uh, your fitness centers, your mental health services, uh, as well as all of your fraud, um, your IRS scams, your student consolidation scams. That's all seen by this. It's huge, including all of our rural areas. You know, having somebody who is actually in our rural communities to talk about, um, you know, all of the, 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 you know, food deserts, all of the, you know, farm to school programs, um, health care in our rural community, just general infrastructure that we don't see. Um, and so it, it's a pretty tremendous cabinet position. That's why I'm trying to get Floridians to, to focus on, you know, picking the right next leader for this. Absolutely. I mean, there there are a lot of contrasts that you can draw both with the outgoing commissioner and I'm sure with your opponent. What are some of the contrasts 
between yourself as the Democratic nominee and the Republican nominee, who obviously is going to take some more industry friendly positions? Yeah, I think that's some of the bigger issues. Um, but I see, you know, first myself is that I've always been a board thinker. I'm not afraid uh, to stand up to, you know, to corporations and to people that are not doing good for, for the betterment. Um, and so you see somebody like me who's coming with a fresh face and who wants to look at technology and innovation and give people the tools to succeed. And that means, you know, getting into our rural communities and talking about, again, uh, food, uh, farm to food, uh, far, farm to school programs. That's talking about putting somebody in the right position to start finally caring about the consumers. And, and my opponent um, has a voting record that shows just the opposite. Um, you know, we, we saw throughout the entire primary uh, that my opponent went very far to the right, uh, holding on to his NRA endorsement, an endorsement from Marco Rubio. Um, and, and that's where he is. And that is a, a strong contrast uh, to what I believe Floridians care about and want to hear from their elected officials. So in other words, down here in South Florida, if voters care about having reasonable gun regulation and actually implementing it, then that's a major issue they need to consider in voting Democrat as opposed to voting Republican because they are NRA backed. Absolutely. And the other thing that I've been saying from day one of my campaign is that most of the issues that are in the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services are not partisan, nor should they be. Um, you know, that with the right people that, you know, some of these things that are food safety issues is not partisan. Our ability not. to drink clean water is not partisan. Protecting the consumer is not partisan. Um, and so I have the ability to, you know, cross party lines and say, I just want good policy and good things in place. And, you know, forget the R and the D. You need the right people uh, to be in, in positions. Well, of course. But there is the issue. I mean, the, the outgoing Republican Florida Agricultural Commissioner, Adam Putnam, uh, his office did not actually review anybody's concealed weapons permits for over a year. Uh, what kind of reforms could you implement if elected as the next agriculture commissioner in the state of Florida, Nikki? Well, I think that day one, uh, we go in there and we do a full audit. You know, we, we have everything has been behind closed doors. We know the investigation was behind closed doors. You know, we I called for um, Speaker Corcoran and actually, um, you know, Matt Caldwell was chair of one of the committees that would have done some oversight on this. So everything was done behind you know, closed bail. And so going in there and seeing what exactly is happening in that department. So that thing is, is day one, so we know exactly what we're working with. But two, it's a, it's a climate change and a culture change inside of that office and making sure that everybody who's working for me um, knows the importance that we that safety first, that if it takes a couple extra days to, to put somebody, to give somebody a, a concealed weapons permit, then it takes a couple extra days. Um, but we need to make sure that we are not handling handing these out like candy, that we are making sure that the safety of our Floridians come first. And so going through and making sure that those regulations are put in place, that our personnel understand the importance of this. And I also think that the conversation needs to start being had why it's even in this department to begin with, in this cabinet, and whether or not we need to start making a, a shift in the legislature uh, to the FDLE to have oversight over this. Sure, to make it into a law enforcement situation, right? Correct. No, that, that would be a major change. Yeah, and I, and I know that there are, um, I've already spoken to some House and Senate members who are going to be putting forth that legislation in the 2019 session. Um, so I've told them that I, will, I look forward to, to working with them as they move through the process. Well, it, it marks a radical departure from the current Republican agricultural commissioner, because even the day after Parkland, he was still trying to weaken 
concealed weapon permits laws in the state of Florida, and you're trying to really tighten them and make them efficient so that <clears throat> they're efficient in protecting life, not just efficient in handing out licenses to everybody. Are there any other issues in the Florida Department of Agriculture that are similar to this that need to be handed back to the rightful owners or corrected that we haven't heard about yet? You know, we haven't had a balance in a very long time between our environment and, and agriculture. And I think that those conversations need to be had, um, that we've seen, you know, that the problems with Lake Okeechobee is not, um, is not natural made. That's human made. And because what we've seen in Rick Scott's administration is a complete um, crippling of, of the, you know, EPA and a lot of the environmental protections. And it's time for us to kind of start, you know, beefing that back up. Um, making sure that what is going in and out of Lake Okeechobee um, is regulated. And we need to start having those conversations to be shifting the policies to have a balance between our environment and, um, you know, the different industries that are involved. Well, there's a phrase you used a couple of minutes ago, climate change, which you used to describe changing the department. But the Department of Environmental Protection in Florida has literally been banned from using those two words. What do Floridians need from an agriculture commissioner regarding climate change in the state? Because every public official has some part in dealing with the, the effects of climate change and sea level rise in Florida. Absolutely. And I think that it starts with science. You know, that it, everything needs to be science-driven, exactly what is happening. And I don't think that enough research has been done on what is happening with the sea level rising and what the change in climate has had on our agriculture community. And so there needs to be, and, you know, we, we know that a lot of the red tide, a lot of the algae bloom is because the waters are hotter. And, you know, but, you know, I am by no stretch of imagination a scientist and, and plan on, on having a lot of them around me to help with policy, but it's actually looking at the science and doing the research and making that as a priority uh, to fix this. We can't just fix this by a quick legislative change. This is something that's been occurring over the last 40 years, and we need to get our, our hands around it um, in a scientific manner and find solutions to it uh, that make sense to the citizens of Florida. Well, Nikki, in one minute, can you tell our audience the reason why they need to vote for you as Florida Agriculture Commissioner and to be a member of the next cabinet in the great state of Florida? Absolutely, and, and thank you again for, for your time and for listening. Um, you know, pe why people should vote for me is because I'm somebody who is going to put the people first. You know, I'm not a politician. I will be a servant of the people, and I think that we have lost that in Tallahassee. And I'm somebody who's going to come to the table with fresh ideas, a fresh perspective, uh, looking for alternative routes of uh, making sure that things are being done properly, giving alternative crops to our farmers, making sure that we are protecting our food safety and food quality here in the state of Florida, putting our consumers first. You know, my 15 years of practicing attorney gives me those types of tools in my shed that I can use uh, to go after the, the corporations that are, are hurting our consumers, making sure that we've got a, a fierce advocate for all of our, our school kids and uh, we oversee the nutrition programs and somebody who's just not going to sit behind a desk and just use the title um, because it looks good on, on a nameplate. It's time to have somebody who's going to actively be working for our citizens and somebody who has been for my entire life um, been that person to, to break glass ceilings. I would actually be the first female elected to Commissioner of Agriculture and I think that's a lot to be said for changing the way that agriculture is done um, in a new face and, and you know I, I'm looking 
looking forward to working with both sides of the aisle. I'm looking forward to working with uh, the traditional agriculture in the state of Florida, which is our second uh, economic developer in our entire state. So we need to make sure that they are thriving and having successful tools um, to make sure for generations to come. But we have a lot of work to do, and I am ready and willing to take on this task, uh, knowing that we can we can change the way things work in the state of Florida for the better. Well, Nikki Freed, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Uh, thank you so much, and appreciate all your listeners. And that's all the show we have for tonight. This is the Only in Miami show.